Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today, I'm speaking with Kate Delos. She is the author of the book, We Are as Gods, Back to the Land in the 1970s on the Quest for a New America. This was published in 2016 by Public Affairs. Kate Delos, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, The first question I'd like to start us out with is what a big undertaking this book was for you, especially given your connection with the two people you have focused on and whose story you have told. Those two people are your parents. How did you approach this book? Well, uh, that's a great question. I, um, you know, a couple of different ways as the writing of the book went along, um, you know, like a lot of people, I, uh, had questions about my childhood that I, you know, that stayed with me into adulthood. Um, and in my case are, um, my parents, I knew my parents had, had come from the city and moved to Northern Vermont where I grew up. I knew they had built this beautiful, um, very unusual, geodesic dome slash log cabin house that I grew up in. Um, But it actually wasn't until I got to college that I realized how unusual that was, which sounds strange because, of course, I noticed that the house wasn't anything like anyone else's house. But, um, but, you know, a geodesic dome is slightly less unusual in Vermont than it is in other places. Um, And so it wasn't until I got to college and really started thinking like, well, what was that? Why a dome? Why Vermont in the 1970s? And I started um, meeting other people who had similar back to the land histories, um, whose parents had gone back to the land in other places, um, in California and Tennessee, um, in um, all over the country, right around the same time that my parents had that I started wondering about the nationwide uh, movement. You know, I could see what had happened in Vermont because I, that's what I was familiar with. But as I got older and I wondered about how it happened all over the country, I realized that my personal questions about what is this community that I grew up in? Why did my parents make this decision? Why did it seem like so many other people from their same demographic made the same kind of decision at the same moment? What was that? And I, and I realized that they were historical questions. Um, and honestly, if I could have just read a book, right then that answered my questions, I would have just read it and I would have been done. But as I looked around for those answers, I couldn't find a book that kind of addressed this time period in the way that I wanted um, it to be addressed. And so um, that to me started to feel like, well, maybe I should be the one to write a book. Um, and and so my parents' story is interesting, but um, I, I was sort of worried about, you know, their uh, they were definitely interesting people and they made interesting choices, but um, their lives actually weren't particularly dramatic. Um, and then and then I met um, Lorraine, who really is the central character in this book, even more than my parents, I would say. Um, and she was a resident of the commune that I'd heard about always growing up. It had kind of disbanded by the time I was um, you know, old enough to have known what it was. And when I met her and she started telling me about what had gone on at um, at the commune that I call Myrtle Hill, um, then I realized, oh, my goodness, there's plenty here for a book and um, plenty of drama to keep a reader invested as we also delve into these historical questions that I'm interested in. So that's sort of how it developed. That, you know, started from my personal family story and then kind of spread out into the wider community, which let me answer these bigger historical questions that I was interested in. So what you're saying is your parents uh, started – their project, their personal project. And there was a community called Myrtle Hill in the same area that had uh, different parameters. Is that is that the case? 
Yeah, that is the case. And so that was partly what was so interesting to me about this period is that I'd known that my parents, um, my parents had bought land with two friends. And so the four of them had, you know, knew each other from um, different contexts, but essentially were all moving from the city interested in building, growing, and they just had this, you know, desire to kind of test themselves against the land, I think is how they might have put it at the time and live simply live close to the earth. They were all from the suburbs. um, And they wanted a different kind of life for themselves. And I had always heard that story. And, you know, my father always objected when we called when we uh, referred to them as hippies, we'd say like, well, you did build a geodesic dome in Northern Vermont. Like, what are you trying to say? You're not a hippie. And he would always say, no, we weren't hippies, but you know who were hippies, the people in the commune over the hill, they were hippies. Um, And that always was interesting to me that my father was drawing this distinction between himself and this group that lived nearby. Um, And then as I looked into the sort of history of it, I realized, you know, gosh, all these people were coming really from the same demographic. They're all, um, I think in this particular group, everybody was white. Everybody was coming from um, middle class or well-off background. They were all coming from the suburbs or the city. um, And they all came at the exact same time. That was what really struck me. It wasn't like it was spread out over 10 years. It was within two or three years, this huge number of people from that same demographic showed up in Vermont. Um, And my parents and their friends really were never interested in living communally. They sort of thought about it for a second and realized right away that they were too, um, that it wasn't going to work for them. They weren't as invested in a sharing economy. But the people who lived at the commune were really, you know, throwing out a lot of social conventions. They were throwing out monogamy. They were throwing out um, capitalism to the extent that they could. They were uh, really trying on all kinds of radical new forms of family and economy and production and all this kind of stuff. Um, and my parents, by contrast, were quite bourgeois and they would have said so themselves at the time. I think they would have said square, but they, um, but, but, but that contrast existed. And to me, I was really interested in both the contrast that my parents were drawing between themselves and this other group, but also the overlaps that were very visible to me that I thought that weren't being addressed. Um, and so I was, see- I was looking at them as, visibly part of one movement, but with different expressions. And then that, that tension was really, was really interesting to me. Was there any awareness of uh, the difference between your parents' project and Myrtle Hill when you were actually living there growing up? Did the people, did Lorraine and the people at Myrtle Hill seem different to you from your parents? Uh, you say that your father... Uh, said he was square compared to them. Did you um, did you think in terms of those people are hippies and my parents are when you were a child? Well, you know, it's even I mean, it's almost weirder than that. I actually didn't know the people from Myrtle Hill. Um, I met most of them in the reporting of this book, even though a huge number of them live nearby. I mean, there's uh the almost one of the weirdest parts to me was that there's a um, a woman who was born um, at Myrtle Hill in a geodesic dome, which was the geodesic dome that my my family's geodesic dome was based on. It was the one that the people at the commune had built, and my parents um, in 1970 went over 1971 went over and saw the commune's dome and thought, wow, that'll be great. We should build one too. So these you know sister domes. I was I grew up in one. This other woman was born six months before me in a geodesic dome a mile away. And I did not meet her until I was reporting this book. It was so unusual. Um, And that's partly because we ended up for lots of reasons going to different high schools. We probably would have met if that hadn't been the case because we did all grow up in the area. But it was, you know, my mother has subsequently become really good friends with Lorraine. And they've been remarking like, why weren't we friends at the time? You know, why didn't we, why weren't we in the same social circles? And, and, they're still kind of puzzling that out, like why why their social circles didn't run closer together. They were they always remained at kind of a friend of a friend distance. And so, um, you know, I didn't have that awareness of their other than my dad saying, oh, the people in the commune are hippies and we weren't um, as, as like a foil to my parents, you know, squareness, even though they were very radical compared to almost everyone else in America. Um, you know, and so I as a kid, I didn't have that because I didn't I wasn't aware of them. You know, this is a very surprising parallel with the urban apartment house uh, example of people don't know the people in the apartment next door or the people who live on the same floor as they do. 
and here we actually almost have the rural version <laughs> of the same yeah. thing. Yeah, I guess yeah. It, uh, I guess it means we're all the same. Yeah, well, it's, it was. I think it's surprising to everyone. It seems in, it seems inconceivable that in such a small, tightly knit community, you could not know your neighbors in that way. But I think I do think it says a little bit about the the the, the difference between the projects that my parents had undertaken and the project that the um, people in the commune had undertaken where my parents really, you know, had arrived in Vermont with professional degrees. Uh, my father had a doctorate. My mother, um, almost as soon as she got there, went and got um, an, uh, became an RN. Um, and they never intended really to live off the land. They wanted to live closer to the earth. They wanted to see if they could build a house. They wanted to live in the house that they had built. They wanted the beauty of nature and, you know, that kind of um handmade life that they could do, but they never intended to make money off of the land or to really give up capitalism. They weren't really rejecting as many systems as people in the commune were. Um, and so I think that those trajectories really did lead them in the 80s into different worlds where my parents were, you know, rejoined a fully professional um, milieu in Vermont and the people in from the commune also also joined that that world. But um in, in a slightly different relationship with it because they spent more time really trying to produce more of their own um, livelihood themselves. Um, that's, uh, that's an interesting way of explaining why the worlds didn't overlap more. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes, it makes a good amount of sense. The thing I'd like to ask you, you're referring to the small community. What are we talking about in terms of, square miles or square something. What, yes. is, what is that? Well, it's, it's funny. I don't, I'm not sure if I could, I don't know exactly what the town, um, you know, I don't know if I could say exactly what the, the, I did know at one point and I can't remember anymore what exactly what is considered the, the square miles of the town. Mm -hmm. But um, the, I looked up the population of the town currently and it's, fewer than a thousand people. I, and my, the number I had in my mind um, from this time period was around 500 people in the town, um, but spread out. But the thing I think is interesting is because it's in northern Vermont, there's a lot of hills in the way. And so, for example, my friends, there's a third group that I write about in the book. There's the commune, there's my parents, and there's this third group that, that occupied um, physically kind of halfway in between those two sort of more square mono, um, you know, a monogamous family, professional um, income represented by my parents and the truly radical, um, you know, non-monogamous, um, free love, like anti-capitalist uh, economy of the commune. And then there's a group kind of in the middle that they refer to themselves as a mini commune. Um, and so there's this triangle of these three groups that I was writing about and as I was trying to figure out how long it would take to get from one to another and why people were walking and when they weren't, it was just so extraordinary to me. If you look on a map from above, there is a triangle of about a mile apart each. But in order to get from one place to another because of the way the hills are, at one point from one to another, it, it actually you have to drive for 11 miles to get, because you have oh to my drive. goodness. And in winter, when they could ski, they could ski over the hill and suddenly it was a mile ski versus an 11 mile drive. Um, and so I think that's part of it, too. The geography just made for they just happened to be on opposite sides of the hill that were very hard to get to. Um, so it's it's sort of in a, in a time in a place where they had kids and they had a lot going on. They didn't really have time to drop in. Um, an 11 mile drive is really is really a real distance. And the hills that you're referring to are forest covered. Is that correct? Yeah. Forest and fields with with sort of, you know, those lovely Vermont hill farms. Um, so. So the sugar bush, which the, you know, the maple covered hills um, and then pasture and hay fields and cornfields, um, a, a mix of those. Uh, I'd like to backtrack a little to lay some more uh, background for uh, the listener. The four people who moved somewhat together, more or less at the same time, to the town that we're talking about, and that is Glover. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, these four people, your parents are two, 
There was a third person named Nick and a fourth person named Nash. They had something in common which made them uh, uh, a logical quartet to do a project like this together. Uh, could you tell us what that is? A well, about that? Yeah, it's one of those funny stories that I grew up with and sort of took for granted. And then when I started thinking about it in, you know, narrative terms for a book, it just, it was such a crazy coincidence. So, um, let me think how this works. So my mother, Judy, um, grew up outside of Washington, DC in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and in that same community, she, uh, or in that community, she went to a progressive school called Burgundy Hill um, Day School. I think I've got the name right. Um, and one of her classmates was this young man named Nash, um, who was best friends with her older brother. Nash also went to a progressive summer camp in Vermont, and there he met a, another young man named Nick, um, and so they were friends from camp. <laughs> and if you're following the circle, Nick grew up and went into the Peace Corps, um, where he was uh, stationed with my dad. And so when my, my, my dad and my mother met, um, and they started talking about wanting to find land together. And they, my dad said, Oh, my Peace Corps friend, Nick is looking for land. Let's see, you know, or, or I think Nick actually, I think it was the other way. He, Nick knew that they were looking for land and said, Oh, I have this friend who's found this land in Vermont. Um, why don't you come up and check it out with me? And they were in the car on the way there. Um, and, asking who's, you know, Nick, who's this friend of yours? And he said, Oh, this is my friend Nash. And my mother said, he's got to be the same Nash that I was my childhood friend. Um, and sure enough, it was, and they hadn't seen each other in, you know, a decade at that point. Um, and so it's just really strange coincidence. And those, those connections kind of all circled around. They all ended up knowing each other, but they were coming out of a very progressive, um, school and a progressive summer camp. Uh, with, that had a lot of emphasis on building and growing as part of a curriculum and part of learning. Um, and so it sort of was a natural extension to, to want to do more of that with their lives. Now, all four people had been in the Peace Corps at some point. Is that correct? Um, Nash actually hadn't, he, but he had traveled abroad. Nash had, um, he was part of, I want to say, um, I, I have this written somewhere, but it's, uh, he had done a service organization, a different service organization in Africa. So, so he actually hadn't, but, um, my mother, Judy, my father, Larry, and Nick had all been in Nepal in the Peace Corps. Had they known each other in Nepal together? Um, only sort of. So Nash, I'm sorry, Nick and Larry, my father were stationed together and spent the whole, their whole Peace Corps time together. Um, and then they were in the third group ever to go to Nepal from the Peace Corps. They were in Nepal three. Um, and then they came home and my father, Larry, got a job as a trainer, training the next group to go. And that group included my mother. So she didn't. So they knew each other from this context. Um, but my mother was actually in a different group from from Larry and Nick. So what an what an interesting and unexpected uh, set of coincidences. Now, the schools that you refer to that these four people came in contact with, it sounds like the schools themselves laid the groundwork for what was going to unfold in a decade or so amount of time. Were those schools uh, private schools, church schools? What was their uh, brief, those schools? Yeah, so the school, this one particular school, Burgundy Hill, um, I think, no, Burgundy Farm Day School was what it was called, and it still exists. It was the first um, interracial school in Virginia in the 50s, um, which, of course, was under segregation at the time. And they um, – so they had a very progressive bent, and I think progressive is the right word. Um, Nash's parents helped found it, and they were themselves um, – leaders in the church. I believe his father was a minister. Um, and so it had, it was, you know, progressive religious people, although the school itself was secular, um, and it was a private school, but it had, you know, they had, um, animals, I think, sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I would have known all of this a year ago when I was freshly reporting it, but, uh, they, they definitely growing and, um, 
gardening and building were all part of the curriculum. And, and when I was talking to people who are familiar with the um, philosophy of the school, but one thing that really struck me was that it was deliberately in contrast to the kind of um, father knows best authority um, culture of the 50s. Like they deliberately wanted adults to be doing things out of their comfort zone in front of children because they thought that it led to a more natural um, learning style and, and an anti, you know, th that they were wary of the sort of like just believe in authority um, they thought that that was politically dangerous. And so they, their educational style and the idea of like working and learning and what was itself political. Um, and it did lay the groundwork. I mean, there are a lot of people who said that, that, um, not only did it give a basis in, um, in building and farming as, as did the summer camp farm and wilderness that was kind of coming out of the same philosophy in the same time period. Um, they, it, 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 I talked to a lot of people who kind of left those experiences hungry for more. Um, but it still doesn't explain, it explains the community that I grew up in. Um, but that was one thing that struck me is people would say, Oh, because I went to this camp, because I went to the school, I had this urge to go back to the land. And then I started looking around and was like, well, you know, as many as a million other people all over the country, the same year, pretty much, I mean, really in a very close amount of time had the exact same idea and they didn't all go to schools like this and they didn't all go to the summer camp. So there was something culturally in the air in addition to the very real experience that they had from these schools and camps. Now, what do you think that thing was that was in the air? I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to know that caused me to, you know, do two years of research and want to write a whole book. Um, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because this urge to go back to the land is, um, cyclical. It comes around in culture periodically. There's a, you know, this was not the first back to the land movement. Um, in fact, it was at least the third in the 20th century alone. And we're in one right now, another one, um, that has shares things in common and then also not in common with the 70s. So I've given this a lot of thought, like, what is this urge just to among, um, you know, privileged people, people who are, who are set to inherit, um, the, the, the power in society, really, and what made them want to cast that off, walk away from their career trajectories and professional trajectories and put their hands in the dirt, learn to make bread, live in houses that were very austere, um, you know, try themselves in that way when they could have been living in total comfort. Um, and so I've been thinking about been thinking about what that is and like where that urge came from. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of different things. If you ask people in the time period, they were different people were influenced by different things. They there was uh, if you remember the kind of um, pollution crises that were happening or Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, there was a new leaf. There was a new um, awareness of pollution in the environment. And so people were wanted to go back to the land um, in order to live closer to Mother Nature. A lot of worry about pollution um, and the, the earth being despoiled. Um, and sort of feeling like you needed to be someplace pure and green in order to live. Um, there was a lot of fear of, uh, of the atomic bomb, which was something that really surprised me. I hadn't been expecting that. But when I started reading about um, things that people were writing in the mid-60s, uh, the apocalyptic sense from this generation was really surprising to me. So, there, so for a lot of people, leaving the cities was a way of saving themselves. In, in the early writing of the early Back to the Land movement, it's very much like we have to get out of the cities, we're going to die here, we have to get out. Um, and it felt like a life-saving move for people, especially early on. Um, and you know, the other thing that was happening is that the protest movements of the mid-60s and late-60s had were beginning to splinter on their own from internal um, internally, but also the crackdowns from authorities were becoming more and more intense. And so for a bunch of people, there were a couple of turning points, um, the Democratic National Convention in 1968 and also People's Park in California in 1969, um, where, where authorities responded with violence. And this is before Kent State, even in 1970, where protesters were killed. Um, but there were a lot of people who felt like, look, we're not going to be able to fight in the cities anymore. If we're going to continue this revolution, we're going to have to get ourselves to someplace safe. Um, so that sense of like impending doom, I was really surprising to me. I had, you know, I had heard very often from like, oh, we just wanted to be closer to nature, but the doom part of it, the feeling that there was no future in the cities for young people, um, w surprised me, but was a very, very, very clear motivator, especially early on. Um, 
Do you have a sense that your parents shared this feeling or was their motivation coming from different place? Both, both and. I mean, you know, my, my mother grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and she remembers being taught to jump under her desk for the atomic bomb, you know, that here's how you're going to be safe in the atomic bomb. And a, a number of people remembered for me um, that experience and that part and parcel of that as children was this sense that adults were kidding themselves. So there were two, you know, as they were being taught, like, oh, first of all, <laughs> you know, a bomb might fall, but just get under your desk, you'll be fine. Um, they were learning both that that was patently untrue. There was no way they're going to be safe under their desks and that adults weren't listening to them. And if something really bad happened, the adults were not a source of security for them, actually, because they wouldn't acknowledge the, the blatant, obvious falseness of the, uh, you know, they could see that this wasn't going to keep them safe and the adults weren't acknowledging that. And so that was really interesting to me, too, this, that, there, that for some people, this childhood experience of, um, we could be killed by a bomb at any minute and adults are useless to us um, sort of seems to have contributed in a lot in some ways to we're going to have to do this ourselves. Um, if any, if we're going to save ourselves, it's going to be us and our own skills and our own hands and we're going to do it. Um, and these systems that our parents have built are not only not there to help us, but are actually imperiling us. Um, so that's like, you know, I hadn't I had not expected that, but that it was very clear that started coming out. The more I read of stuff people were writing in the mid 60s, the more I could see that. Um, and so that was true for my parents as well. They both they recall seeing a map, a fallout map and consulting a fallout map and sort of saying like, oh, if a bomb is dropped on New York or on Boston, are we going to be safe in northern Vermont? Um, and so, yeah, it was part of their thinking. So this really uh, is something that has been under underreported or at least not really paid attention to the effect on that generation of students being told to duck and cover in elementary school, uh, how this uh, created a, for them as children a bomb anxiety and an, an atomic anxiety, and it actually directed their choices as young adults you know i that is how i see it and and i'm you know i'm not that's not just me alone um there are historians and scholars who've who've made those come to those same conclusions but but what was so interesting to me is i'd heard over and over again the sort of like oh we want to get back to the land because the land is beautiful and it's fresh and we have this opportunity and that fear part of it that you know i just was like look this happened all of a sudden it really was quite sudden in the end of the 60s all of a sudden this huge movement happened the same demographic all kind of had this huge idea all over the country, it's happening everywhere. What was it? Like, what was the thing that spurred it? And to a degree, I hadn't expected part of what spurred it was fear. Um, and, and a fear of the fear that the future was being foreclosed on for any number of reasons. Um, and, and the, that, that rural life and like, uh, putting your hands in the land skills, um, represented security and safety to a lot of people um, and represented a way forward when they couldn't see a way forward in the cities and in the society that they kind of felt was starting to crumble. And that the adults in that society were not really any use. They had no solutions. Their solutions sounded naive. And they hadn't really taken taken on the full uh, effect of what does it mean to be living under the possibility of annihilation? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, clearly this is going to, even though it's relatively recent history, I'm just so interested to see how historians going forward, my generation and even the one generations of historians after me are going to interpret this, um, you know, this baby boom generation and, its place as, um, it's, you know, its place within the American story because it was a huge generation gap. I mean, it was this huge um, youth rebellion that I'm, I'd be interested to see if it repeated. I'd be interested to know if it really happened on the same scale. People are going to say like, oh, actually, the you know, the, re the rebellious youth of the 20s was quite similar or whether this one really did stand apart as um, even more... Uh, even more, you know, rebellious. Um, but what, what really struck me about the Back to the Land movement was how often 
people who made these choices, every single choice they made was in counter to this 50s suburban middle class upbringing that many or most of them came from, that they would, you know, the example I always think of is I grew up in a geodesic dome at the top of a field. And every once in a while, we would refer to the field in front of our house as a lawn. And my father was always like, it's not a lawn, it's a field. I will not have a lawn. And I was like, what difference does it make? Who cares? You know, you're mowing it with a lawnmower. So why <laughs> a lawn? And so that, you know, that kind of is emblematic. And I, and I just saw that a lot, like that people would be like, well, I'm not going to have anything that looks like anything that was in my mother's kitchen. I don't want it. Anything that looks like it was something my father might have worn. I don't want it. Um, this giant no to the to the parents generation was so extreme and such an intense motivator for people making these very radical choices, very austere choices. Um, but I will say the benefit of talking to people 40 years later is how their learning curve progressed. Like Lorraine, the main character in my book, who, um, you know, was really motivated early on in her desire to belong to a commune by rejecting her mother's kind of conventional middle-class kitchen. Um, and it led her into helping invent this counter cuisine. That's now a huge part of what we all eat today. Um, and she, I remember her saying sort of like, God, I got to this point where I, you know, my mother was so obsessed with hygiene and it just seemed to me to be so false. And so like, just because something is squeaky clean on the outside doesn't mean like, why am I bleaching the garbage cans out? It's going to have garbage in it. Like who cares? Um, and so she chose Lorraine herself as an adult chose, uh, as a young adult, um, sort of threw out a bunch of those conventions of cleanliness and then <laughs> discovered like, oh, actually, if we don't boil the milking equipment when we have a cow, everyone's going to get a staph infection or, you know, hepatitis ran rampant across communes because people weren't being careful with their hygiene. And so slowly these you know, I just recall Lorraine saying to me that the moment where she was like, oh, my God, maybe my mother wasn't completely wrong about hygiene. Maybe some of these things she was saying we do need to do. Um, and so this huge rejection of throwing out everything that smacked them of middle American values and conventions. And then some of them sneaking back in again, or I shouldn't say sneaking back in, but realizing there's something to it that, um, you know, when you throw out, when you decide I'm not going to live in a nuclear family, I'm not going to be monogamous. The fantasy is that's going to get rid of every single family and relationship problem ever. Um, and that's not true at all. I mean, being married to 20 people in a communal setting is not easier than being married to one person. All of those same problems of, Childcare, maybe not, maybe not all of them, but many of the same problems of childcare, money, cleanliness, like all of those things that you have to deal with domestically are still there. They don't get thrown away just because you've rejected the system, the, you know, nuclear family system. And so that learning curve, um, was really intense for a lot of people, but really instructive. Like they threw everything out and then things came back in. Um, but not everything came back in. They, they, they did a good job, in my opinion, like purging some of the stuff that didn't work for them from the 50s. Well, tell me what did come back in, in addition to certain hygiene principles. Uh, well, you know, monogamy in the nuclear family did come back in. Um, not everywhere, um, but the what happened at Myrtle Hill happened in a lot of places. This was another reason that when I started doing this research, I could see that Myrtle Hill made for a really great story to tell because it ended up being quite representative of a thing that happened across the country in different forms. Um, so you had people from the suburbs and from the cities deciding we're not going to live in nuclear families. We're going to live in this communal family. We're not going to have conventional professional jobs. We're going to support ourselves. We're going to grow our own food. We're going to have a craft economy. Um, and that didn't solve all of the problems they thought it was going to solve. It brought in other problems that they hadn't anticipated. Um, and within a couple of years, what they and the solution they ended up coming to is very, very, very common. Instead of living all together communally in one house, they ended up kind of separating out into nuclear families, but living in community. So near each other, cooperating with each other, but not trying to share a kitchen, not trying to share child care. Or, sorry, not I should say. They did share child care, but they didn't try to raise each other's children, um, which turned out to be a point of tension in a lot of communities. Like when parents, there were a number of people who said, I was all in on communal living until I saw someone else reprimand my child in a way that was not OK with me. Um, and so these lines that people hadn't anticipated um, when they redrew them for themselves, they said, oh, OK, I don't want someone to have a say in my child's education or in my child's how my child should be reprimanded, but it is really helpful 
if we can pool resources and take care of each other's children while we work in the fields or work cooperatively in that way. Um, so that move from full on non-nuclear living like a family to separating back out into monogamy more or less um, and nuclear families, but still sharing land, sharing work, sharing community, but maybe not sharing finances completely. Um, that happened a lot. That happened all over the country in, in different forms. Um, and with different levels of success. So in other words, it takes a village, has its, um, it is a balancing act. Yeah. And, yeah. and what, what Myrtle, it sounds like what Myrtle Hill became was a neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A neighborhood, uh, although a little closer than that. I mean, in Myrtle Hill's case, they, they, um, what happened for them at least, um, into the 80s is similar to what happened in a lot of other places where they also kept working together. They found ways to keep working together. Um, and in their case, they ended up finding, um, you know, central work around food. They One of their members, Craig, um, who only actually lived at the commune for a couple of years but stayed a close member of the community for a long time, um, got a, a VISTA grant that allowed him to start a food co-op, which was another huge movement happening all over the country in the city, just as well as in the, in the country. Um, and so he started a food co-op in the local town. And basically most of his commune mates worked there in different capacities. And so Lorraine became a baker and that's, she stayed in food service for the rest of her career. Um, uh, uh, one of the other commune members, Amy, who had been a 16 year old runaway, she also stayed in food for another several decades after that. Um, and then the men started a trucking company that allowed them to do these huge distribution systems because they were looking for organic produce to sell in these co these co-ops that were springing up all over New England. Um, and they would go say like, OK, here we, we're going to there's a organic wheat crop in Montana, let's say we're going to go to Montana and get this crop of organic wheat, but we'll bring with us some main organic potatoes and, and bring them to the people in Montana and then bring the wheat home again. Um, and so these distribution networks really contributed to the, you know, 4.5 or whatever the number is, billion dollar organic industry that's happening today. Um, the demand for organics came from these little kind of co-ops and, um, organic farming uh, ventures that were happening because of back the back to the land movement all over the country kind of led to this huge thing today. So, so Myrtle Hill found a way to be pioneers and then they kept working together even after they stopped living together. So these communities were the origin of what we now take for granted, the stores called food co-ops. Is that correct? Well, they, you know, I, I'm not sure that the food co-op, the history of food co-ops goes all the way back to the 17th century, if you follow it back to that. But um, the, and again, it's these, the movement is kind of cyclical. So there was a big food co-op movement in the 1930s um, that by the 1970s, to the to the new radical young people of the 1970s, the 30s co-op looked very bourgeois. They couldn't tell the difference between the um, they were they were not necessarily health food stores. Uh, they were you know in the way that we now associate health food stores and co-ops is having like a lot of overlap that wouldn't have been true for the previous generation. Um, but they did have these cooperative structures. So the seventies generation kind of came in and saw this cooperative model um, and knew that they, they needed access to the kind of ingredients that they wanted for the food, the health, the, the, you know, coming out of macrobiotic and coming out of all of these sort of what we would now call health food movements. Um, and so yeah, I mean, if you look at the histories of a lot of today's big um, natural food stores, a lot of them date back to the 70s, including Whole Foods, including um, the Park Slope Food Co-op here in Brooklyn from 1973, I think. Um, so, yeah, it was a big, big, big movement at the time. So interesting that we're seeing the roots of so many things in the story of uh, the community that your parents are a part of. I would like to ask you, uh, since the story was and is about the people, did you get 100% cooperation from people in the community when you told them that you were writing the book and wanted to ask them about 
how things had unfolded in their lives? I mean, astoundingly close to 100%. Really, there's nobody who I asked to talk to that didn't talk to me, um, which is incredible. And it, and it really speaks to the generosity of the people who became characters um, in the book and their incredible trust. And and um, and also, I, I would say their awareness that what they had done, this time period that they had lived, deserved to be understood as, a, you know, understood by by future generations and and even you know even now as um as something worth memorializing and paying attention to um and so i think that they they understood that and then i just was just astoundingly lucky that they trusted me to the extent that they did um especially especially somebody like lorraine who really really you know offered the details of her life so that you you follow her like a character you know my goal was that it should read like a novel and that you feel like you're following the characters um as they are making decisions and thinking about it. And that requires like an incredible level of trust in me to tell, you know, as I would go back and be like, well, how did you feel? <laughs> like what are, when, when this happened, what, what, what were you thinking about? Um, and I just, they just gave me a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous level of access. I really appreciate it. That's uh, astonishing. It is for, astonishing. For any writer and for any, any journalist to encounter such openness. Yeah. Now, uh, I have to say that, Growing up in a geodesic dome must have been one kind of fantastic experience. As a child, was there anything about a geodesic dome that you loved and then that you didn't love? <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm, I'm ready for that answer. So, you know, the my parents really thought carefully about where to put the house. Um, and there's a scene in the end of the book where they, they originally built it, um, further down the hill, uh, and then decided after they lived in it, they originally built just the dome, which is 20 feet in diameter. So it's like a tiny little studio apartment. And they lived in that for one winter and then thought, Oh, we, you know, if we're going to stay here, we need to have more space. Um, and that spring they walked up the hill a little bit further and noticed that where the sun struck the hillside and was melting the snow, um, on this ledge. And they thought, well, that would be a great place for a house because the sun is striking there. Um, and so there's this kind of dramatic scene in the book where they enlisted the help of their neighbors, their farm neighbors, without whom they probably wouldn't have survived one winter in Vermont because the um, they didn't know what they were doing. Um, and their farm neighbors were, <laughs> were like, okay, you crazy hippies, you want us to help you drag your geodesic dome up the hill with our tractor? Sure. Um, and so they they moved the dome. They actually dragged it. They had their neighbors dragged it up the hill behind a tractor. Um, and so because of the location, the sun poured through these beautiful triangular windows. And I mean, if there's a better place on the earth to take a nap than in a triangular sunbeam on the floor um, in winter, I do not know of it. Um, so I just loved that. I still love it. And um, but at the same time that, you know, the loft bed in the dome was my parents' master bedroom. Um, and so you know, I think about it now, my own children, how often my own children just come running into our room and climb into bed with us. Um, and we didn't have access to that because they were up a ladder um, in where we were not allowed to go because there was no railing. It was not safe for children in this loft bed. So, you know, I would say that that, that I loved the sunbeams, but the, the, the master bedroom being in a, ra uh, in a you know, um, railingless loft where I wasn't allowed to go was, that was too bad. The off limits yeah. aspect. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, th I think that uh, perhaps there were other things that as you got older, but you were still basically a child, you might have started to be aware of in a more mature way. And what I mean is pluses and minuses growing up where you were. You were in a rural forested setting. Uh, I believe Glover is 20 miles from the Canadian border. Isn't that correct? Yeah, just about. Yep. Um, what What were you thinking when you were uh, a young adolescent? Did you oh, think, man. I want to stay here forever? Did you think, uh, I can't wait to go away? What were you thinking? No. Yes. When I, it's funny. I was thinking in childhood, but when you asked me a young adolescent, oh gosh, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, like a lot of rural kids, you know, I mean, it was, um, I think most of, most of my friends growing up in a rural place like that, 
um, at least wanted to see what else was out there. And I mean, in a way, here, here I am, I live in Brooklyn now, so I've clearly made a different choice um, for myself as an adult. And so I, I think a lot about that. What are the pros and cons of living in a place like that and growing up in a place like that? Um, and, you know, so among the things that I just are unequivocally wonderful about it, uh, you know, the relationship with the land that my parents wanted for me and for my brother, we really, really had. I mean, we really, we have a connection to that place and the seasons and the birds and the, you know, the times that the flowers come in. I really have, it, it wasn't until I left home that I realized I had this very intensely strong internal calendar of when all of the things came into bloom, when the birds showed up, when they left again, when the trees turned, um, and that I was telling time and seasons by the natural world more than by the clock or by the calendar. Um, you know, I just remember at a certain point I realized as a kid that I was associating people's birthdays with what was in bloom if they had summer birthdays. So for example, Nash's partner, Mariel, I always think her birthday is daffodils because they came out at the same time. Um, and so, you know, things like that, I, 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 even as an adult, even in Brooklyn, I always hear the birds singing. I always know what bird it is that's singing. I'm always looking at what's growing. And I think that does come from that childhood of not having had a television and being, you know, left to my own devices in the woods for hours and hours and hours. Um, it was an unequivocally a gift. At the same time, we didn't have much exposure to people who were different from us, except for, I mean, that's, that's not quite true. Vermont is very diverse um, in economically and um, in certain kinds of ways like that. But um, I'm always surprised when I come from Brooklyn and go back to Vermont. It always surprises me how white Vermont is, um, and that and uh, and I I think that there's downsides to living in places with with um, with that kind of lack of diversity. Um, and that's one of the reasons I've chosen to live in the city and to raise my kids here. Um, and I also noticed, you know, that my as much as I, we loved this very, very rural house, um, it's a hard place to raise two kids. And my, and my mom had a hard time there. Um, she felt isolated a lot of the time. And I think about that all the time when I have my two children, even when I'm, you know, struggling up the subway steps with a stroller, um, there's always someone there to help me. There's always someone, if I really need help, someone will help me carry it. And it's a stranger I'll never see again. I may not share a language in common with that person, but um, but I, to me, I take a lot of comfort from being around people. Um, and I think part of that was having grown up in a situation where, where we couldn't see the neighbors, there were neighbors, they would have helped us, but we would have had to run, you know, a mile through the woods to get them if we needed to. Um, and I really like having neighbors that are just like right next door. This uh, was the next question I was going to ask you. And you're in the middle of answering it, which is, you have chosen a large city as your home, and it's different from how you were raised. In part, you've just said, there are people right next to me who can help me when I need help. Um, what else about a large city makes you feel comfortable? Yeah. Um, I mean, those reasons that I just gave are the ones that I, that I don't think occurred to me till I, till I wrote this book and people started asking me that. And I really wanted to answer honestly. And I do think that that being, I really love people. I mean, I remember when I decided to move to New York, um, right after college and I thought, well, it terrifies me. So let me just give it a year. Cause it seems like a good idea to do something that terrifies me. <laughs> and then five years went by. And as soon as five years went by, I was like, Oh God, who knows when I'm leaving? I can tell now that this is, I'm still not done. I'm still not done with whatever reasons brought me here. Um, and New York is tough to beat as a creative person. I mean, I th I've been thinking about that a lot too. Like the fact that it's hard work all the time and that, you know, you are constantly thwarted just going to the grocery store is actually in a kind of strange way, really great for a creative process. It keeps you hungry. Um, because nothing is easy. Like going to the supermarket is like the most annoying thing in the world. And somehow for me, that contributes to contributes to me um, staying in the game as a writer. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I should also say I'm really lucky. I've, I've always been able to garden in Brooklyn. I mean, I sort of made it 
that was a turning point for me when I joined a community garden and realized if I could grow tomatoes in Brooklyn, then I didn't know when I was going to leave. Um, and so the ability to still be able to like put my hands in the dirt someplace has been an absolutely important part of me, my ability to live in the city um, and feel comfortable here. And so once I realized that I could have a garden in the city and that I could find a space to be outside and grow food and where birds would come um, and that I could pay attention to them, that made a big difference in my city experience. Now, since we have the geodesic dome on the plate, and since you've just said that it's the um, the, stimuli, the stimuli in New York that uh, make you work hard and help creativity, I am going to quote the inventor of the geodesic dome, <laughs> Buckminster Fuller, who said, Stub your toe, get a cinder in your eye. When you feel good, you feel nothing. <laughs> and we could continue talking for at least another 50 minutes about this fascinating subject. I think that we've only scratched the surface, but I do want to say that this book indeed read like a novel it was fascinating uh, addictive uh, edge of the seat thank you and i cannot recommend it more highly oh, thank you any so much. reader i would like to thank you for giving us your time are you going to write another book I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working on a number of ideas um, right now. My, my current, my current idea is sort of taking me back another generation to um, World War II. But I'm partly because what makes it fun for me is, uh, is trying to get close enough to the characters that you can really understand why they did what they did, um, because you have access to how they felt and how they made their decisions. And so. It's one thing when I can call up Lorraine and ask her, but it's another thing when it's another generation uh, who have gone um, and I'm relying on letters and stuff. So I'm, I'm figuring out if there's enough material there for a book about the World War II generation. Well, please keep going and keep writing, and we are ready to read your next book. So <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in, by way of thanking you, I will say once again that we have been speaking with Kate Delos about her book, we are as gods back to the land in the 1970s this was published in 2016 by public affairs kate this has been a wonderful conversation i am so pleased it was a pleasure speaking with you and thank you so much thank you so much for having me